Good evening. So this evening I'd like to continue exploring our theme of freedom here and now. Starting with the reminder that the freedom that's being referred to here is freeing ourselves from painful, afflictive, and self-referential mind states, and instead establishing ourselves in beneficial, skillful, and altruistic mind states. Which again might sound very simple, but as you all know is not so easy which is probably why the Buddha laid out a path of practice that comprises eight different factors. It's a very holistic path, and it encompasses every aspect of our lives, both formal meditation practice and ordinary everyday life. And this idea of path, again, suggests that we're on a journey. As I mentioned on opening night, we're on a journey of inner discovery, And we can think of this journey just like in everyday life. All journeys have their twists and turns, their ups and downs, their challenges and their rewards. So even in the first three days of this retreat, has it been a straight, linear, smooth, level path so far? Anybody? No. Or has it been meandering, sometimes up and down, sometimes seeming to drop off completely, get lost. Where did it go again? Come back. That's normal and natural to be expected. There will be challenging phases of this journey, and yet something in us still feels confronted when we do run into those slightly more difficult phases of the journey. And even after many years of practice, there's still a tendency to equate pleasant experiences with good meditation and unpleasant experiences with bad meditation. So when things get difficult, we can think we're doing something wrong. And we put a lot of effort trying to work out how we can get back to those pleasant experiences that we had yesterday or on the last retreat or a decade ago. So tonight I'm going to talk about some of the challenges that we can expect to encounter during a meditation retreat. Those, some of those difficult mental states that can pull us off balance in various ways and can temporarily derail us from this experience of freedom until we learn how to work with them skillfully. So this afternoon we were exploring the second establishment of mindfulness, mindfulness of Vedana or feeling tone, and we started to see what a powerful factor that is in pulling us into three basic afflictive energies when there's no mindfulness. So pleasant leads to greed. Unpleasant easily leads to aversion of anger or fear. And neutral easily leads to spacing out delusion, ignorance, sometimes willful not knowing. And on one level, it's obvious that if we're caught in any of these three core afflictive energies, it's going to have a negative impact on our lives and on our meditation practice. 
But because all of these states are rooted in delusion, it's often very hard to bring awareness to them while they're present. So in the Satipatthana Sutta, the Buddha instructed us to train in recognizing the various ways that these unskillful states show up and interfere with clear seeing, interfere with insight. So in that Satipatthana Sutta, he instructed us in the fourth establishment of mindfulness to pay attention, to be on the lookout for five, <coughs> five particularly unhelpful qualities of mind, traditionally known as the five hindrances. So anyone remember what these are? In order, the first one. Uh, in, in order, that might be your priority <laughs> in your experience. <laughs> no, no. Yes, greed. Desire for sense pleasures. Desire for sense pleasures is the first one. Second one. Aversion, ill will, which as I said includes all forms of anger and fear. And then, sloth and torpor. And then, restlessness and worry. And then, skeptical doubt. Yeah, you guys are good. Maybe I don't need to give this talk. Maybe we can just sit in silence and observe the absence or the presence of these hindrances for ourselves. What do you think? Right. Good point. With so much sloth and torpor, maybe there won't be that much awareness. Okay, so I will continue. Sounds like you're pretty familiar with how they can get in the way of this clear seeing, which is why they're called hindrances. The Pali word literally means covering over or obscuring obscuring our ability to see clearly. So not only that, not only do they obscure our ability to see clearly, they can cause harm, harm for ourselves, harm for others. Because as the Buddha says, if I can see properly, he says they overwhelm awareness and weaken discernment. And when one is without strength and weak in discernment, it's impossible to understand what is for one's own benefit, to understand what is for the benefit of others, and to understand what is the benefit, what is of benefit for both. So there's a very direct connection then between the hindrances and ethical conduct or sila that we were exploring on Saturday night. And in this practice of bringing awareness to the hindrances, we're also grounding in that same commitment to non-harming. So not harming ourselves, not harming others, we need to learn how to work with these hindrances skillfully and how to help them release if we are going to experience the deepest freedom of heart and mind. So first we need to know whether these hindrances are present or absent. And this balanced, non-reactive approach is very clear in the instructions from the Satipatthana Sutta itself. So I'd like, you, I'd like to read you the passage just about sense desire, but then it continues for the other five. Here in this teaching, meditators... While sense-desire is present in one, a meditator knows there is sense-desire present in me. 
Or, while sense desire is not present in one, one knows there is no sense desire present in me. One also knows how the sense desire which has not yet arisen comes to arise. One knows how the sense desire that has arisen comes to be discarded. And one knows how the discarded sense desire will not arise in the future. So there's a shift here when we come to the teachings under the fourth establishment of mindfulness. In the first three, mindfulness of body, of feeling, tone of mind, the general instructions are simply to know whether something is present or absent. That's all. No need to do anything about it. But when we come to this fourth establishment of mindfulness, qualities such as the hindrances, it's not enough just to know whether they're present or absent. As you heard in that um, passage, we also want to know how do they come up in the first place? How might we prevent them from arising? And how ever, in fact, if they have arisen, how do we help them to release? And how do we stop them from arising again in the future? So there's a lot more engagement with our practice at this point. There's a lot more involvement, and this is the path factor of right effort. So there's a lot to exploring these hindrances, and the first step is really to know when they're present. Because unless we see them for what they are, we can't do anything about them. And that's partly why I... Uh, from time to time, like to drop in these three questions. What's happening in the body? What's happening in the heart-mind? And how am I relating to this experience? Because sometimes, I mentioned earlier, uh, in my practice I was very, very mindful of the breath at the nostrils and I was got some skill at noticing all the nuances and the subtleties of the physical sensations. But it was quite a while before I realized that I was completely clueless about what was happening in the mind and particularly my attitude to experience. So we can get very good at paying attention to these subtle details and not even realize that there's a building up of aversion or desire or resistance or whatever. So just taking that kind of quick quick snapshot throughout the day and particularly if we realize that we've got distracted lost in some kind of unskillful mind state just to stop okay what's happening in the body so you connect with whatever physical sensation is predominant okay what's happening in the heart mind any kind of emotions or thinking about the experience or moods and then what's the attitude or how am i relating to this is there any kind of resistance, not wanting, not liking, pushing it away? Or the opposite, some kind of greed, mm, nice, make it continue. Or ignorance in the form of confusion, not knowing, spacing out. So those three questions are just a very simple way of getting a hit of what's happening in the immediacy of the experience and checking for the beginnings of any um, flowering of the hindrances. Because the earlier we can catch these hindrances, the easier they are to release. Conversely, the longer they go on, the more they tend to bring in the rest of them with them. 
hence the famous multiple hindrance attack. These things don't come nice and tidily, one and then two and then three. They tend to all pile on. I'm sure you've had that experience that one comes in and it brings all the rest of them in for the party. So you may have noticed again in that Sutta passage that I just read that the first step is to notice if the hindrances are present or absent. And again, there's that very impersonal, impartial language. It's not about you. So it's just noticing, are they here or not? And yet most of us, I think, have the tendency to take the hindrances very personally and to think they're a problem in my practice and I've done something wrong because I'm experiencing these hindrances and I need to make them go away. So trying to release any kind of judgment, self-judgment, when the hindrances have arisen is challenging but really crucial. So again, we're trying to meet what we're encountering with kind curiosity. And there's a, a short slogan that I found a few years ago that was very helpful in my own practice in this respect. It says, if it's in the way, it is the way. And just that can help illuminate all of those things that we think are wrong, a bad a problem getting in the way of my practice. And instead of seeing them as being in the way, can we make them the way? So especially with the hindrances, rather than struggling with them, okay, how do I use this particular hindrance to actually strengthen my practice? So again, I've shared with you the English Dharma teacher Rob Berbea in this service of not taking the hindrances personally he reframes them instead of hindrances. He calls them manifestations of our humanity. So you might feel a little bit of an energetically different flavor if you think of them as manifestations of our humanity rather than the hindrances. And so sometimes when people come into meetings, they'll say to me, I was just manifesting so much humanity this morning. <laughs> and it's helpful to be able to laugh. Because again, anything that helps us depersonalize these challenges is very useful. So, just by way of reassurance, I'm not going to try and cover all five hindrances in this talk tonight. I'm going to focus mostly just on the first one, the uh, craving for sense pleasure. And uh, you'll get a sense of how to, if working with that one, uh, will help you work with the others too. So this first one, the uh, desire for sense pleasure, is rooted in that afflictive energy of greed, the tendency to move towards pleasant experiences, to cling, to hold on, to prolong, to chase after pleasant sights and sounds and smells and tastes and physical sensations and mental pleasure. And this might bring short-term happiness, but because of the truth that everything changes, in the long run, it's a setup for disappointment. And this is the hindrance that usually gets us into the most trouble ethically, because when we're blinded by greed for something, we stop seeing other people as fellow human beings, and we see them instead as objects that are getting in the way of our, of our happiness, or objects that exist to make us happy. 
And on the global scale, we can see this greed-driven relationship to the planet itself. And on retreat, the hindrance of sense desire often shows up as an obsession with comfort. And I've seen that in myself and in many other meditators on retreat. How after a day or two, we work out all kinds of little strategies and habits and tweaks and techniques for keeping ourselves as comfortable as possible. And once we've set up those strategies, we can get surprisingly reactive if something, if they get threatened in any way. Has anybody noticed that? If somebody takes your walking spot or your cushion in the hall or your place in the dining room or your last drop of almond milk or whatever it might be, And on one level, it's natural. Of course, we love comfort. And given the choice, many of us would probably happily stay in our comfort zones forever if we could. But the challenge with that is that comfort becomes stultifying. It shrinks our comfort zones and they get smaller and smaller. So one Tibetan teacher complained about his students and he said he was constantly telling them to wake up but they were like marsupials and they just kept wiggling back down into the pouch (laughs) and I think we can relate to that there's something in all of us that would just like to be a marsupial and stay in the pouch but again if we do that our comfort zones just get smaller and smaller and eventually they become a prison And even so we all have our own strategies for doing this and at times it can be useful to use comfort skillfully. But these days there's a lot of talk about self-care and originally that was apparently a radical feminist concept. I think Audrey Lord was one of the first to develop that. And like a lot of things these days, it's become mainstream and co-opted by capitalism. So it becomes about going to spas and having pedicures and going on luxury holidays and so on. So self-care, if we're not careful, can easily slip into self-indulgence. And then we don't discover the full potential of the path, the path of freedom that the Buddha has laid out for us. So the American monk Tanisaru Bhikkhu has written an interesting essay on strengthening the quality of resolve to meet this tendency to slide into self-indulgence. And that's one reason why on Saturday night I invited us to write down both our aspirations and the people or beings we would like to share the benefits with. Because sometimes having deeper clarity about our intentions can be a motivating factor. So Tanisara Bhikkhu says, making determinations gives strength to your practice. Otherwise, you just sit, meditate for a while, and then when the going gets tough, oh, well, that's enough for tonight. You don't push your limits. And as a result, you don't get a taste of what lies outside the limits of your expectations. As the Buddha said, the purpose of this practice is to see what you've never seen before to realize what you've never realized before. And many of these things that you've never seen or realized lie outside the limits of your imagination. 
in order to see them, you have to learn how to push yourself more than you might imagine. So if we do want to progress beyond our limited beliefs about what's possible, we need to learn how to manage the hindrance of sense desire in a skillful way. And in support of that, I'd like to borrow an approach developed by one of my teachers, Gil Fransdell, from his book, Unhindered. And the book, Unhindered, is about working with these five hindrances. And he's come up with an acronym, BELLA, B-E-L-L-A, five different strategies for working with the hindrances. So, the first of these, B, stands for B, B-E. It's about letting the hindrance be, rather than our usual habit of getting caught up in it, either feeding it or repressing it, struggling with it in some way. So this is how Gill describes it. When a hindrance appears, it's useful to first let it be. This is not giving into it or intentionally participating with the thinking it may involve. It means not acting on it or reacting to it. It involves training to stay present for our experience without being in conflict with it. There is no need to be discouraged, angry or self-critical when faced with a hindrance. Letting a hindrance be is a practice of finding inner stability and equanimity in the face of its destabilizing force. The practice of letting a hindrance be becomes most effective when it's combined with a clear recognition and acknowledgement of the hindrance. The clearer the recognition, the more we pull ourselves out of its gravitational force and the greater is our freedom from it. Recognition ensures that our practice is honest and realistic. Now, especially in terms of sense desire, some of you might ask, well, what's wrong with just satisfying my desire? Isn't it normal to want things? And yes, in mainstream society, it is normal. But often the way we go about fulfilling those desires creates a lot of suffering for ourselves and others. And in the context of Dharma practice, that wanting is an energy that ripples that metaphorical pond. It whips up and stops us seeing clearly. So the first stage of be is an invitation to just be with it, to ride out the desire instead of giving into it. And at times when I have been able to do this in my own practice, it's shown me quite a fundamental delusion that's present in most forms of desire. Usually we think we need that thing, X, whatever it is, to make us happy. So we put all of our energy into getting X, whether that's a piece of cake or a new car or a dream holiday. But often underlying that is a, a desire to actually be free of the agitation of the wanting. Because the agitation of wanting is inherently unpleasant, irritating, agitating. So if you really tune into when you want something, you might notice there's a sense of leaning forward, a tightening. Our mental energy collapses and fixates. Things get small and narrow and tight and disturbed 
Does that feel true for people? Yeah. So sometimes we think, well, if I get that, I'll be happy. But what it's actually doing is temporarily getting rid of that negative energy of wanting. And then it's usually not that long, even if we do satisfy it, before the next sense desire pops up. And then we're off again after the next thing. The next thing we think is going to give us some satisfaction. But if we are able to ride out the desire and stop our compulsive chasing after it, then we develop more and more freedom from that agitation. So that exploration of desire leads into the second letter in Gill's acronym, which is E for examine, or perhaps explore. And he says, the most important aspect of practicing with the hindrance is to examine it. Just as a spiritual freedom requires wisdom, so overcoming the hindrances requires understanding them well. If we know all their guises and tricks, we are less likely to be taken in by them. So we can examine the components of a hindrance, i.e. its physical, energetic, emotional, cognitive and motivational aspects. For example, strong desire may be experienced physically as a leaning forward, a tightening of the solar plexus, or a sense of lightness. Energetically, it may involve pressure, a rush of restlessness, or an upwelling of vitality. Emotionally, sense desire may involve pleasant emotions like delight, excitement, or eagerness. And cognitively, sense desire may involve beliefs and stories that we tell ourselves. Then motivationally, it may include a strong impulse to act, to cling, or to fix. So in case that might be sounding a little bit abstract, I'd like to give an example from my own uh, experience of how, as Gil says, sense desires can easily lead into beliefs and stories and identification. How we take these pleasant experiences personally and can create an identity out of them. So some of you have heard this story before from one of the first nine-day retreats I did uh, quite a few years ago now. And as I describe what's happening, see if you can notice which hindrances I was getting caught in. So on this particular retreat, as in most retreat centers, the meditators were told not to go into the kitchen unless they had a, a job in there or something like that. And we were told not to take any food from the kitchen, only to take the food that was offered on the serving tables in the dining room. So on breakfast in the first morning, I just happened to notice a meditator going into the kitchen and helping themselves to some food that I was pretty sure they hadn't been offered and then coming back into the dining room. And as I said, I was pretty new to the practice at that time. So maybe I'd heard, heard about the concept of knowing thoughts as just thoughts, but I didn't have any clue about how to put that into practice. So when I saw this it triggered a pretty strong wave of self-righteousness and judgment. And then the second day, the same thing happened. And I had exactly the same response, except this time it was a little bit stronger. 
And then the third day, the same thing happened again. And the fourth day, and finally, after four or five days, I started to realize this is actually painful to me to be sitting there obsessing about whether what that person was doing was right or wrong. And And so I started to examine. This is the E of examine. What's that about? And I realized that that other person was just getting the kind of breakfast foods that made them happy. And I, too, was eating the kind of breakfast foods that were making me happy. But the only difference was that my food was available on the so-called right side of the kitchen door. And so I realized, I started to notice that just like the other person, I was pretty attached to eating the kind of food that I liked to eat. And so I decided to experiment with seeing if I could let go of those preferences. And I did it by making a determination that when I was going through the line for breakfast, I would just eat whatever the person in front of me happened to eat. So if they had toast, I would have toast. If they had milk with tea, I would have milk in my tea and so on. And I was pretty amazed at just how hard that was. And I was pretty amazed at all the observed thoughts that came up around other people's food preferences. Like what kind of person drinks their tea with milk and sugar? But I managed mostly to do it, and I would try, in terms of feeling tone, it was very interesting to take a sip of the tea with milk and sugar in it and try to enjoy it in the way that the person in front of me probably enjoyed it. And when I could suspend all the mental activity about how wrong it was and how bad it was and how much better my tea was, it was actually quite pleasant. (laughs) So again, we see the conditioned nature of feeling tone. But towards the end of the retreat, I really hit my limit when the person in front of me took some white bread for toast and then they put a huge blob of peanut butter on it. And I just do not like peanut butter. And so my mind just went into overdrive and I heard it say, I'm just not a peanut butter kind of girl. And it's like, and I heard that and I thought, well, what is a peanut butter kind of girl? There were all these images and views and beliefs and constructs around food that I'd had no idea I was carrying until I went through that exercise. And just how identified I was with my preferences being right and so on. So this is just one small example of when we can make the effort to examine the sense desire, it can help to lessen its strength when sometimes we see, like in that case, just how ridiculous it is. So this is the first L of Gill's Bella uh, strategy, which is lesson, L-E-S-S-E-N. So he says, in addition to identifying and examining a hindrance, we can lessen its strength. Relaxing both the body and the mind are ways to lessen its intensity. We can soften any tension associated with a hindrance. If a hindrance is overwhelming, lessening its power may require removing ourselves from situations that reinforce it. It may be useful to direct one's attention to something that has a calming effect. 
So I'd like to highlight a couple of aspects of what he's pointing to there. One is the idea of relaxing the body and mind and directing one's attention to something that has a calming effect. So meditation is a very powerful ally here. As I mentioned earlier, the tension and agitation of desire are often what drive us to try to get relief from it. But if we can calm that agitation through meditation instead of acting on the desire, we're on safe ground. So having a daily meditation practice is a way of giving ourselves regular doses of calm and relaxation so that again, metaphorically, our immune systems are stronger and we're less likely to fall prey to unskillful desires. And on the other hand, if we are in the grip of one, it can be very helpful to try to sit with it in meditation and do what we can to soothe it, to meet it with kindness and compassion rather than judgment. So the second part of Gill's description of lesson that I'd like to highlight is his suggestion that we remove ourselves from situations that might reinforce sense desire. And traditionally in the practice, this is known as guarding the sense doors. In other words, avoiding situations where we tend to habitually get caught. Because prevention is better than cure, as they say. So for example, if we're trying to give up an unhealthy relationship to alcohol, then Trying not to walk home past the bottle shop every evening is probably a good idea. And if we're addicted to online shopping, it's a good idea to unsubscribe from all of those catalogs that we get sent. And similarly, if we're addicted to technology, just from time to time, having a device-free day to see how that helps the agitation lessen. So in the example of temporarily letting go of technology, we might find other ways of entertaining ourselves that are actually more pleasurable and healthier. So this can help us to replace an unskillful pleasure with a, a skillful one. So reading a book instead of an um, online book or spending time with a friend or going to a cafe or an exercise class or volunteering in your community or a sangha. There's so many different ways we can find healthy ways of um, getting our um, changing from unhealthy sense pleasures to healthy or skillful pleasures. And the more we enjoy those, the easier it is to let go of those more sticky and compulsive desires. So this last example also supports the second L of Bella, which is let go. And Gill says, once the hindrance is understood well enough, it can be appropriate to let it go. Sometimes this can be accomplished by letting up on the pressure that's fueling the hindrance. So letting go of the thinking that perpetuates it. One might also let go of attachments to any self-identity connected to the hindrance. This ability to let go of the hindrance comes with practice. As mindfulness strengthens, a time comes when mindfulness becomes stronger than the energy of the hindrance. And the same is true with our ability to let go. As the muscle of letting go strengthens, it's easier to leave a hindrance behind.
So again, this comes back to the importance of non-identification, or as Gill says, letting go of attachments to any self-identity that might be connected to the hindrance. So the challenge of working with sense desire of any of the hindrances that they they can bring up our strong conditioning to take things personally. So, for example, instead of just knowing with bare awareness, oh, sense desire has arisen right now, we tend to say, I'm so greedy and make it permanent. I'm a greedy type. This is always the way I am. And the problem with this is it often leads to a multiple hindrance attack because when we identify with the greed, it brings up judgment, self-judgment, aversion. And that aversion is tiring, so we zone out into sloth and torpor or go in the opposite direction and get caught in obsessive restlessness and worry. And then all of that combines to undermine our capacity to do the practice. And then skeptical doubt gets its hold on us. We convince ourselves that we're the world's worst meditator, a completely hopeless case, and we might as well just give up and go home. So the key to not getting lost like that is non-identification and remembering Rob Berbea's um, statement that the hindrances are manifestations of our humanity, trying to meet them with kindness and compassion. And this leads to the final letter in the BALA acronym, which is A for appreciate. When we really pay attention to more skillful forms of pleasure and to the times when the mind is free of sense desire, then our capacity to appreciate this freedom grows. This is how Gill describes it. The path of freedom is nurtured by appreciating the times that we are free. When we've been caught up in an attachment, it's useful to value how we are when not caught. When a hindrance is no longer present, it's useful to take time to enjoy its absence. To be mindful and present without being hijacked by the hindrances is a joy. The relief that arises when the mind is free of the hindrances is a delight. If you can feel this sense of well-being, you will know a type of pleasure that is better than any sense pleasure, better than the energy of ill will. The mind will naturally want more freedom rather than giving away freedom to the hindrances. Unhindered attention is a treasure. It's what allows mindfulness to do its most penetrating work of liberation. When the mind is settled and freed of the hindrances, we can look more deeply into the functioning of the mind and discover the fullest possibility of liberation. So this is the final aspect of the hindrances that I'd like to really emphasize tonight. Remembering that in the Satipatthana Sutta, the paragraph that I just read, we're instructed to know when the hindrance is present and also when it's absent. To pay equal attention to when we're free from that hindrance. But for many of us, this is quite a challenging aspect of the practice. Again, because of that neuroscience understanding of our inherent negativity bias, we tend to pay a lot more attention to what's unpleasant and painful 
than what's easeful and going well. So trying to overcome this bias, especially in relation to the hindrances, can be a very powerful practice. Consciously paying attention to those moments when the hindrances are either completely absent or at least somewhat reduced. So I'd like to try that right now. Again, coming back to that scale of zero to ten, if ten is the most addictive, intense craving you've ever experienced in your life, and zero is completely nothing, you might just take a moment to tune in and notice what degree, if any, of sense desire is present right now. It's pretty dark, so we can't see each other, so it's somewhat anonymous. But is anybody at a 10 right now? Nine? Eight? So that's pretty good. I won't go any further. But just to take a moment for yourself. And you know, this is only partly a joke. Noticing how strong is sense desire in this moment. Perhaps there's a little bit of a trace of craving for the talk to be over, but other than that, maybe generally it's quite low. And as you recognize that, how does that feel in the body, the heart, the mind? Is there some sense of ease and appreciation and openness? Perhaps self-respect, integrity, relief. Just to notice. So when we do have more space in the heart-mind, due to the absence of the hindrances, that space allows the skillful qualities to come up in their place. And really tuning into and acknowledging those skillful qualities also helps them to grow, helps them to become a resource. It sets up a positive feedback loop and strengthens our confidence in the practice. So I hope that this overview of the hindrances and what happens when they're released might give some sense of possibility and inspiration about where all of this practice is leading. So may our efforts here on this retreat to reduce the hindrances help us to experience the deepest possible freedom of heart and mind. Thank you for your attention. Let's just take a moment of silence. Silence.